Well, brethren, I had the chance to live in Ireland for about four and a half years, a number of years ago. And I really got to love the people, love the country, and I love their stories. Because in Ireland, many of the stories have to do with religion because of the Catholic-Protestant divide that's been over there. But I came across a little story last week that I wanted to share with you about a fellow that we'll call Michael O'Reilly. And Michael O'Reilly lived in the country. He had a dog. And one day his dog died. And he was mentioning to his neighbor, I'd like to get somebody that could give a funeral for my dog. So the neighbor said, well, why don't you walk up the street? There's a parish church up there. Talk to the Catholic priest and maybe he'll do a, a funeral for your dog. So he went up to the Catholic priest and he said, uh, you know, my favorite dog, Patty, died. And I'm looking for somebody that would do a funeral from a dog. And the priest looked at him and said, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, but we don't do funerals for dogs in this parish. Well, Michael O'Reilly thought about it for a minute. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a wad of 100 euro bills. And he started to thumb through them. And he said to the priest, he said, what do you think? The priest had told him, once you get down the street, there's an Anglican church down there, and they will probably, they might do a funeral for your dog. So he counts out these $100 euros, and he said, 100, 100 euro bills, and he said to the priest, he said, do you think if I gave them about 5,000 euros that they might do a funeral for my dog? And the priest was a very quick-thinking individual, and he got this sparkle in his eye. He said, well, now, wait a minute, Mr. O'Malley. He said, we might be able to help you. He said, um, you know, uh, you never mentioned that your dog was a Catholic. (laughs) You know, this little story offers a hint of what I want to talk about this afternoon. One of our ministers was visiting with us recently He made some very interesting comments. He said, a number of the new people that I'm having contact with have a lot of questions. Some of the questions involve, does God really exist? How do we know? Is the Bible really true? Now, these are go-tos that he's coming in contact with, asking some very basic questions. Can we really believe? Can we really trust the Bible? You know, it was written a long time ago, and I've heard that it has a lot of, uh, it's just a collection of fables. In fact, uh, I read the Da Vinci Code, watched the movie, and there's a character in the movie that says, you know, the Bible was only written by men. In fact, when I first started keeping the Sabbath, I was in graduate school, and one of my classes was scheduled Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I had to go talk with the fellow who was teaching that class, and he wrote, he'd written a, a medical textbook that was about three inches thick, and they referred to it as God's textbook. Because there's one medical student who said, you know, when you read this book, I will know everything that I need to know about this particular subject. And I thought, you know, life doesn't work that way. You're going to have to learn a lot more things. But I had to go talk with this gentleman that had quite a reputation, and he told me the same thing. He said, well, young man, 
He said, I had a brother that was on one of the committees that translated the Bible. The Bible is only written by men. He said, you're going to give up your career in medical science to keep the Sabbath? Now, I'd only been keeping the Sabbath uh, a couple of months. And I had to say, uh, I need to keep the Sabbath. He just kind of shook his head. Because I think in his mind, the Bible was only written by men. Now, we're running into people that have had these same experiences. They've heard the Bible contains a lot of contradictions, and that uh, there are books that were excluded from the Bible because they have a different story that disagrees with the books that are actually in the Bible. So these are some of the things people are running into today, and then we run into them when these people come in contact with us. You know, we're living in an age where we're witnessing a a growing phenomena in our world, our Western world, Uh, an increasing amount of doubt and disbelief that's kind of spreading through the Western world. And this is promoted by teachers, by preachers, by politicians and judges, by people in the media, in the entertainment industry, and it's affecting everybody. Parents, children, students, even church members. Well, how do I really know? You know, Can I really put my trust in this book, in this God that's supposed to exist? You know, this is the world we live in today. And this, what I'm describing, really describes what we read in Luke uh, chapter 18, verse 8. Dr. Meredith has mentioned this. We've mentioned this from time to time. That Luke is writing there that when Christ returns, will he find faith on this earth? In fact, I think it was a Knox translation that says, will he find faith left on this earth? Will there be anything left of faith on this earth because of the uh, influence of what is happening today? You know, Dr. Meredith has been mentioning for a number of years, actually, that we've got to strive to build an atmosphere of faith in the living church of God. And he's been saying that basically to counter the ideas that are in the world. As we will see as we go through the sermon, Dr. Meredith is basically paraphrasing and repeating what the Apostle Paul mentions numerous times about building faith, about hanging on to faith, about striving to defend the faith. But what I want to ask this afternoon as we get started in the sermon, how do you build faith in an age of declining faith? We're going against the grain. We've got to swim upstream if we're going to do that. How do you build faith in a society that seems determined to destroy faith and to shoot down anybody's faith? How do you build strong faith in a world that is antagonistic to literally anything about God and anything about the Bible? How do you do this? How do you earnestly contend for the faith once delivered with so much pitted against us? And it's not an easy thing, but it is possible. I want to talk about an incredible tool that you can use that God has given us to help us build faith. And that tool is right here. It's right here in this book. I've entitled the sermon, The Bible, the Key to Faith. The Bible, the Key to Faith. And I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 
excuse me, it's Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 10. Again, it's Paul that's writing this. We begin in verse... uh, Beginning in verse 14, it says, How shall they call on him, on God, in whom they have not believed? They're not going to call on God unless they believe that he exists. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? They've got to hear about God, who he is, what he does, how he operates. And how shall they hear without a preacher? We've got a lot of preachers today that may even say, well, God really doesn't exist. We don't really know. You just need to be a good person. How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they're sent? Again, we've got a lot of people preaching today or want to preach today. They've never been sent. They take it on themselves. And it talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But in verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is one of the ways of building faith is to hear the word of God. Some translations say uh, hearing the lips of Christ. Well, Christ was the God of the Old Testament. He was the one that spoke to Moses. He was the one that spoke to the uh, prophets. Jesus Christ uh, spoke and taught the disciples. But I want to focus on this verse as we go through the sermon today, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In the sermons that Dr. Meredith gave on faith, he used a lot of scriptures. They were coming from the Word of God. When we talk about prophecy being fulfilled, it comes from the Word of God. As we build our understanding of the Bible and what is in the Bible, we're going to be able to build our faith. But in order to use the Bible as an effective tool, we need to know some things. We need to know what the Bible is. What is the Bible? Is it just another book? Or is it very different from other religious books? We need to know what the Bible says. Many people don't read the Bible today and they don't know what the Bible says. We're going to be doing a series of uh, little programs, I think, on the Internet. Uh, does the Bible say that? And people are shocked, I think, when they realize that's in the Bible. The Bible says we don't go to heaven. That's what it says. You mean Trinity's not in the Bible? That's right. It's not there. Some very interesting things that people assume is in the Bible, but they're not there. If we're going to use the Bible as a tool, we need to understand what it is, what it says, how it was put together. Well, yeah, that's academic stuff. We don't need to know that, do we? If we don't know that, then we're going to get blown away by some of the questions that people raise and some of the critics that like to shoot at the at the Bible and the people that believe the Bible. We need to know how it differs from other books. And why Suzelka has written an article on the difference between the, the Bible and the Koran. I remember making some comments at the feast a couple years ago. I said, if you want to understand Islam, you need to read the Koran. And some people came up and Dr. Winnell said we should read the Koran. Not for religious reasons, not for belief reasons, but to understand the difference. And you'll realize they're very different books. The God of the Koran is not the God of the Bible. But that's not going to make a lot. That's just going to be a statement unless you actually read both of the books and compare them. 
You know, we used to do this in Ambassador College. Third year Bible was basically a comparative religion. What do the Catholics believe? What do the Protestants believe? What do the Hindus believe? What do the Buddhists believe? And then you begin to appreciate what you actually do believe when you see what the alternatives are. And you can make a very definite choice. I don't want to go that way because I'm just not interested in that. So one of the reasons for studying about the Bible and why we offer some Living University courses about the Bible is so that we can answer the critics and dispel doubts and not get pulled into arguments which we really should have the answer to and we do have the answer to. So with this information we're going to talk about today, and I'm just basically going over the surface. It's like an iceberg. I'm going to talk about the top of the iceberg, but there's a lot more underneath the water that we cover in some of the classes and also in books that are available. But if we learn to use this information and get excited about it, the, the Bible can actually become a very valuable tool for building your faith. I want to ask a few questions at the beginning. We've been talking about the statistics today show that the world we're living in is showing a decline in church attendance, a decline in religious belief, a decline in the number of people that believe in God, a decline in the number of people that actually believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, increasing numbers, especially among young people, that they don't have any faith. Well, I just don't belong to any church. I don't think it's relevant. I don't think I need to. This is what's happening in the world that we live in. We also see people in the world today, Christian world, so to speak, that are just drifting away from church because they don't feel any compelling reason to be there. Religion is not that real. And as the little story I told in the beginning, they see things in churches that they just don't identify with. They see the hypocrisy that's there. They see religious people doing things, religious leaders doing things, that they just realize that that's not right. That doesn't agree with the book. So why do we see this declining faith in, the, in our world today? What's, what's driving these downward trends? Turn, if you would, to Second uh, Peter. Again, the Bible gives us insights as to what will happen as we approach the end of the age, which is one of the proofs that God inspired this book, because these prophecies were written almost 2,000 years ago. Second Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. We'll start in verse 3. It says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. The people that have their own ideas. They scoff at what's in the Bible. They say, well, you can't trust that. Here's what I think. So this is what we're going to see becoming more and more prominent towards the end of the age. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? I remember seeing the, an article on the front page of a little newsletter. I think it was last year. And the title was, Will he ever return? Talking about the return of Jesus Christ and just saying, look, when we look over 2,000 years, they've been looking for Christ's return for, for decades and for centuries. And the author was writing, will he ever return? You know, we know what he says, but will he ever? Again, planting doubts in people's mind. 
But it says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, the things continue, and everything keeps on going uh, regardless. It says, for this they are willing, they willingly forget. You might want to look that up in some different translations. In other words, they're willing to ignore facts that are right in front of their eyes. Or that they close their eyes to evidence that is clearly available. They're willingly ignorant. They overlook and they don't tell anybody about evidence that does exist. Romans 1, Paul is talking about conditions 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. And we've been described as modern Romans today because we're going down the same path. Beginning verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They hold back the truth. They don't tell the truth in unrighteousness. And it goes on to say that they're without excuse because the evidence is around. It's there. Verse 25, they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. In other words, they'd rather believe in lies and not acknowledge the truth, which would require them to acknowledge the fact that God exists. But the Bible is true. One more scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning verse 3. It talks about the last days, that last of the day of Christ's return will not come unless the falling away comes first. He's talking about a falling away, not just from the church of God, but from biblical truth. You know, this nation was founded on biblical values. We're getting away from those. Uh, almost hand over fist. We can't do it fast enough. This is what Jesus said, what inspired uh, Paul to write this. We're going to see the same thing towards the end of the age. You know, we're living in Satan's world. You know the scriptures here, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where Satan is called the God of this world. He's the one that's guiding things. He's the one that's pulling the strings. He's the one that is moving the world in a direction away from God. In 2 Corinthians 11, it mentions there about false teachers who are Satan's ministers. They're instruments in Satan's hands. These false teachers that are teaching wrong things. And they're going to be deceiving many people. Okay, the question I want to ask is just very briefly to think about what happened in America. And what has happened in the Western world that got this ball rolling to begin doubting God, doubting the Bible, turning away from God? How did we get to where we are today? This just didn't happen overnight. This has been building over the last 150 years or so. This is just a very brief summary. But in the 1850s, Darwin came up with this idea, actually wrote it down. He didn't really come up with it the first time, but... Uh, Talking about creation without a creator. We really don't need God. We can explain everything without God. And this began to plant doubts about the Bible and about God. This was also around the same time of the age of reason, where we don't need spiritual things. All we need is reason. We can think these things through and we can come up with answers. It was a time of the philosopher Nietzsche that um, basically was 
basically saying, well, God is dead. You, know, you look around, God can't exist because of all the stuff that's happening in the world. Unfortunately, uh, Nietzsche went insane and died, uh, but God is still there. You know, his philosophy took him down a really dangerous path. Karl Marx was coming up with his uh, theories about uh, communism and making comments that religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, it's a drug that helps poor people function and get along in a very difficult world. Um, and that we really, to solve these problems, the workers of the world need to reunite, re, reunite, <laughs> unite and throw off religion and throw off political oppression and, and become this new man that the, the communists were trying to create. Also about this time, higher criticism was developing. You know, literary criticism, where you look at the Bible, you don't read what it says, you read the words. And they come up with ideas that well, there must be three or four Isaiahs because the style changes through the book of Isaiah. So they, they can't be the same Isaiah. It's got to be different Isaiahs because this one was all talking about the kingdom and this one's talking about prophecy and this is talking about something else. Well, even the textbook that we use in um, some of our Bible classes in Living University, the, the authors point out that uh, if you write a letter to your mom... And then you write a letter to your boyfriend. They probably sound pretty different. If you write a letter to your dad asking for money, that sounds a lot different than you write to your friend. Now, are you four different people? No, you're the same person. But your subject is going to dictate the style that you will use. And there weren't four different Isaiahs or three different Isaiahs. There was one. But he's writing with a different focus on a different subject. So just understanding a little bit helps us get through some of these critical ideas. Your textual criticism, well, we can't believe the Bible because it talks about miracles. And everybody knows miracles don't happen, so we, we can't really trust this book because it talks about these, these things that don't happen. Well, things do happen that can't be explained today. So these are some of the things that have been building in society over the last 150 years that, that plant doubts in people's minds. And we need to understand where these doubts come from and the forces in society that are causing these things to happen. One other thing I want to mention, I've mentioned this before, but in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, there were ideas that came out of Europe. Patrick Buchanan mentions a number of these things in the book, The Death of the West. And he talks about a group of uh, Jewish intellectuals, basically in Germany, Italy, and Eastern Europe, that founded an institute for Marxism at the University of Frankfurt. And this is called the Frankfurt School of, of Thought. But they, they were basically communists and socialists, and they wanted to promote those ideas, basically to destroy capitalism. Because they were looking at what was happening in capitalistic societies and they saw the oppression of the poor and the exploitation of people so that the rich could get rich and the poor got poor. He said, we've got to change this. And they saw that Marx had tried to do that in Russia and failed because he used a military approach to cause a revolution. And their thinking was, it's not military, it's culture. And we've got to capture the culture. Because they noticed it was religious beliefs that people held on to in spite of communism being forced down their throat. 
So this idea of capturing the culture, of marching through the institutions and gaining control of teaching positions in universities, gaining control of the judges and gaining control of politicians, if they could do that, they could then throw off capitalism and succeed with communism and socialism. And these are the things that we're building through the 20s, 30s, and 40s. They started this at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. And when Hitler rose to power in the 1930s, they realized we better get out of here. So they were invited to Columbia University <laughs> in New York City and ensconced in a school of education up there where they began promoting these ideas, ways of capturing the culture and undermining the culture in the Western world. And several things that they tried to do, and they tried doing this in Europe before they left, was to destroy the family, to undermine the family. And you do that by introducing sex education in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and by uh, getting women into the workforce, and by promoting homosexuality in the military. This is where these ideas came from. It was things to do to destroy the culture of the Western world. And then to approach, or then to take steps to destroy religion, plant a lot of doubts. Religion's a bunch of fairy tales. To plant doubts about God. God doesn't exist. How do we know? And to begin attacking the Bible. It's just a bunch of stories. It's just about a figment of your imagination. It's not real. These were some of the seeds that were planted and then began to grow in our society. I think I would guess many of the people today that are actually knocking God, knocking the Bible, planting doubts, don't understand what they are promoting or where it came from. But Buchanan does a good job of kind of explaining some of these things, giving a framework, giving a framework. <clears throat> You look at some of the things that are being published today. Richard Dawkins, this uh, biologist from the UK, the book he wrote was called The God Delusion. And he just goes nuts. You know, he says, God is just this homophobic, bloodthirsty, terrible person that you read about in the Old Testament. Uh, and he uses about 10 or 15 adjectives in front of that. That, um, <clears throat> you know, it's bad stuff. Uh, another fellow, Christopher Hitchens, he's dead now, uh, but he wrote a book entitled uh, God is Not Great, all small letters in the title of the book. God is Not Great. And he grew up uh, in an Anglican school and basically jettisoned his belief. He's got a brother that writes totally different books that promotes religion, uh, but this is what's happening today. Theologians like this Bart Ehrman up at um, Chapel Hill, who writes books that knock uh, the Christian faith. And I came across a statistic in one of the things I was reading last week that uh, said about 80% of students that believe in God and have a strong faith when they go to college lose their faith in college. 80%. Because they listen to people like this. But there are many people, even trained theologians that are not part of the church, don't agree with uh, Bart Ehrman. They say he's crazy. <laughs> but 
you've got to read the other side of the story or look at the other side of the coin to, to put some of these things in perspective. Archaeologists today criticize the Bible or ignore the Bible. I came across something last week. Actually, yeah, this week. In a book or in a... Uh, there's a magazine called Artifacts. It's up in the library. So the title of the article was The Bible is a Dirty Word. Now, this is written by an uh, archaeologist. And he said uh, several prominent journals are actually being pressured to change their title. He said the Biblical Archaeologist magazine has been changed to Near Eastern Archaeology. Take the Bible out of the title. Another one was uh, Oxford University Press has changed the name of its new archaeological encyclopedia from the Oxford Encyclopedia of Biblical Archaeology to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Archaeology of the Near East. In other words, get rid of the term Bible. And so there was another seminar in London talking about digging up Jericho in which nobody referred to the Bible because it was a Palestinian speaking. So they didn't want to use the term Bible there. So this is the world that we're living in, where people feel pressured to not even talk about the Bible, not even talk about God. You know, historians ignore God's role in history. And yet whenever you read a lot of history books, they realize that they're saying things. Well, this happened. We don't know why it happened. <laughs> but if you understand the scriptures, you can see why it happened, because God said it's going to happen. It's amazing what is there. You politicians and judges today that promote laws contrary to the Bible and preachers that make people feel good, but they don't really deal with issues. They ignore what the Bible says. Okay, this is just some of the reasons why we are facing the conditions we are today. These things have been building in society, and Satan is going to bring these things all together. It's going to take Christ's return to actually put a stop to all of this foolishness. But this is how Satan has been using things and building things in society, basically to plant doubts in people's mind and destroy and undermine their faith. So let's look next at how do you build faith? How do you build faith in this very antagonistic environment? And how can we give an answer for the hope that lies within us? This is what, Paul, what Peter was urging in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, be ready to give an answer, to give a defense. I believe the word there, uh, <clears throat> not in that particular verse, but in some other ones. When it talks about defending your beliefs, the word in the Greek is apologia. Apologia, which we get our word apology from. And the science of... Uh, or the, the field of apologetics. Now, we, we hear that word and we think, well, I don't want to apologize for what I believe. But look up the definition of apologia. It doesn't mean to kind of cringe and say, well, yeah, I believe in God and I'm going to apologize for that. It doesn't mean that at all. It means a reasoned, logical defense based on evidence. A reasoned, logical defense based on evidence. Maybe jot down Acts 26, where Paul is defending his faith to King Agrippa. And when he's done talking at the end of that chapter, King Agrippa says what? Well, that was a pretty sorry story. No, he didn't say that. He said, Paul, you almost convinced me to believe. 
because this was logical. It was convincing. Uh, it was very emphatic. You weren't apologizing for a thing. You were explaining the reasons for your belief. Also in, uh, I think it's in Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 17. Verse 17, Paul says, I'm appointed to defend the faith. So part of my job is to defend the faith. And the word there is apologia. To give solid reasons for what I believe. And to help other people realize there are solid reasons for believing. You don't have to doubt You don't have to be embarrassed for what you believe. In Ephesians chapter 6, again, Dr. Meredith has mentioned this. As I mentioned, he's he's merely repeating. Uh, He's not plagiarizing, he's paraphrasing (laughs) and reading uh, what Paul was talking about. Paul was saying pretty much the same thing about building your faith. In verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And Satan uses the same thing over and over and over. And we talked about Bart Ehrman. We talked about uh, uh, <clears throat> Richard Dawkins and how they're knocking the religion, making fun of it. There was a fellow that we talked about in uh, one of the issues of the magazine. Uh, this was um, March, April 2014 on the... Uh, who has the truth? This fellow by the name of, uh, I should have wrote his name down because I don't remember it, Robert Ingersoll, back about late 1890s. He was traveling around the country give, making outrageous statements about God and about the Bible. And people paid a dollar or two to listen to him because his statements were so outrageous. Almost like Richard Dawkins today. People buy his book for 15 or $20 I remember asking an individual I know in, in the UK, I said, why does he write these books? He said, he's making money. <laughs> he's making money. The more outrageous he can say things, the more people buy his books. In the first century, there were guys by the name of Porphyry and Celsus that were knocking the Christian faith. And they were doing the same thing. So Satan uses these wiles and these methods down through history to destroy people's faith. But Paul mentions here, put on the whole armor of God. Now notice what this armor is and why we have to do this. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We're fighting spiritual battles. And those battles are fought in our mind. It's a battle for your mind. Will you believe or will you doubt? And Satan wants to put doubts in there. We don't know that God exists. Have you ever seen him? You haven't seen him, so how do you know? You think that book is true? Look at all the errors in there. Look at all the contradictions. You can't believe that. Well, this is one side of the coin. Unless somebody talks about the other side of the coin, it sounds convincing. So we need to be aware of these things. Paul says, put on this whole armor of God so you can stand. Uh, verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. You've got a big belt on it, it has a big T on the buckle that says truth. If you understand what the truth is, then you can be confident. If you're not sure what the truth is, then you'll, well, I, I, I don't know. 
Now, once you know what the truth is, you can be confident. And that's part of your armor. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this big brass bless, brass bless, <laughs> a tongue twister, a brass breastplate. There we go. You know, then you can stand and things will bounce off of it. But if it's rubber or if you don't have it on, it's liable to be fatal. But this is part of your armor. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel and taking the shield of faith. You hold up a shield. You can bounce things off of it. But truth and, 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 and faith go together. It says the shield of faith. I know what the truth is. You can't get me with that argument because I know what the truth is. So that you can be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one because he's going to be shooting doubts at you. And he'll try and work to get into your mind. So this is some of the advice that we're given. And again, Dr. Meredith's comments about building an atmosphere of faith are basically saying the same thing Paul is saying here. Put on your armor, build your faith so that you can withstand these trials. Okay, what is faith? If you're going to build it, what is it? How do you work with it? How do you build it? If you're going to build a house, you need some plans. If you're going to build faith, you've got to have the same kind of plans. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Very simple. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that you don't yet see. This word for substance means the assurance or the confidence. You know, this, this podium is substance. If I bang my knuckles too long, I get sore knuckles. Because <laughs> there's something here. When I first started reading materials from the Church of God, and my mom was a Sunday school teacher, my dad was a deacon and an elder, and my mom was always giving me little books to read. And I'd read them, and it's kind of like... It wasn't really... There was nothing I could sink my teeth into. And yet when I started reading materials from the Church about... Uh, the United States and Britain and prophecy, about the Bible, uh, about prayer, about uh, various things. All of a sudden, this is something you can bite into and you're not getting cotton candy. You take a bite of cotton candy, it's all air. Nothing there. <laughs> you bite into some whole wheat bread, you, you chew, <laughs> you chew and you don't drop it on your foot because you could bruise your toes. There's substance there. And that's what Paul is saying here. Faith is the substance. It's the assurance. It's the confidence of things that you're hoping for. And it's the evidence. It's the proof of things that you don't yet see. The Bible is filled with proof if we know where to find it. And there's a lot of things that substantiate the Bible. But we've got to find the evidence. You've got to look at it. But it's not going to be any good if you don't know it's there. And these are things that we've got to do on our own. This is an active thing. Second Peter chapter five verses. Second Peter chapter one verse five. Something else we need to do. Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse five. Peter says, but also for this very reason, he's been talking about these exceedingly great and precious promises in verse 4. He says, but also for this very reason, when you understand these promises, giving all diligence, speed, uh, you really put some effort into it, add to your faith. 
is to add these things. Well, I believe in God. That's all I need. I, I just don't need anything else. No, Peter said, add some things to your faith. Virtue. And that means courage. You know, I believe what I believe because I know it. You're courageous in that sense. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. It's not wrong to add knowledge to your, you know, to your armor. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of history. Knowledge of archaeology. Knowledge about the Bible. And the more you add, the stronger your faith is going to be. These are things that you can do. And to knowledge self-control. Now, how does that relate to your armor? Well, if you read something that really knocks the Bible, it can blow you away. Oh, I never understood that. I, I guess I'm wrong. No, a person with self-control says, what's the other side of the story? Or as Paul Harvey used to say, what's the rest of the story? <laughs> I've heard yours. Okay, now let me hear the other side. And there's stuff on the Internet that uh, will knock the Bible. But if you look a little bit, you'll find articles that knock those articles that say that uh, that guy didn't know what he's talking about. So if we take the time, you can build your faith. You can do these things. You know, Paul makes this statement in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. You know, growing up in a number of different churches, they never knew that scripture was there, but it's there. It says, prove all things. The word means examine, look into, prove it for yourself. And then hold on to what proves to be right and true. But I encourage you, do it for yourself. Well, I heard Dr. Winnell give a sermon. Or I heard Mr. Meredith give a sermon. I heard Mr. Ames give a sermon. No, do it for yourself. Do it for yourself. I've heard some people say, you know, I went to Ambassador College and uh, I had an inspired margin in my Bible and I just wrote stuff in there and I found out it was a bunch of baloney later. Well, don't write things in your margin until you've proven it for yourself. And if you write in what you've proven, nobody's going to blow you away. Take the time to do these things. We had one or two lectures at college years ago and come in and give this big lecture and you come in the next day. Well, I was doing some more reading last night. Change your inspired margin. <laughs> you know, I stopped writing things in my margin until I had proven it for myself. Then I wrote it in and I wrote it in in ink. And I don't have to be embarrassed about what I wrote in there because I took the time to look into it and prove it for yourself. Now, this is no little thing. Prove it. Examine it. <clears throat> Okay, building faith. What is the Bible? How does it differ from other books? You read about the Bible a little bit and say the Bible is a totally unique book. There's nothing else like it on the face of the earth. It's different. It's not like the Koran. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And you need to ask yourself, do I believe this? Am I convinced of this? 2 Timothy, <clears throat> chapter 3, and verse 16. Paul says there, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. In other words, all Scripture is inspired by God. God inspired the writers. <clears throat> he inspired their choice of words, their choice of subjects. But this is what Paul is saying. 
you know, the Koran was put together by in bits and pieces by people that heard uh, uh, Muhammad say certain things and write it down on a scrap of parchment or a scrap of whatever happened to be around, and they kind of put it together. Uh, <clears throat> the Bible wasn't put together that way. It was put together in a very deliberate manner. But Paul says all Scripture is inspired. Now, you either believe it or you don't. But you need to prove it to yourself. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says pretty much the same thing. Second Peter chapter 1. Now, this is what we read, and then you have to look for the evidence that backs this up. Second Peter chapter 1. <coughs> Begin verse 20 and 21. It says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Yet we've got people today that want to put in all kinds of personal interpretations. For prophecy, and you could say Scripture, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is God's Spirit. This is what the book says. That God's Spirit inspired the Bible. So our challenge then is to look for the evidence that it is inspiring. And when you see the evidence, then you've got something that you can hang on to. Christianity, another point I want to make here, is a historical faith. Islam is not. As you read through the Quran, there are mistakes of history. There are mistakes of geography. There are things that don't fit together. Other books, like the Book of Mormon, nobody knows where some of these names came from. Uh, But the Bible is very different. The Bible is very different. The history in the Bible, let's put it this way, the, the biblical record, what is written in the Bible, agrees with history. And it agrees with the facts of archaeology. Other religious books can't match that. But this is, this is part of the evidence. You know, up until the late 1800s, people believed that there was no such uh, um, civilization as the Hittites. Because nobody had ever seen anything outside the Bible, so the assumption was they didn't exist. But they did. Early 1900s, they found a bunch of tablets in Syria, the clay tablets written in the Hittite language talking about the Hittites. And all of a sudden, wow, they really did exist. But for some time before that, the scholars looked at, nobody knows anything about these people. They never existed. Well, they did exist. And they were proven to be true by discoveries. Some people have said, you know, there's, my dad used this argument on a minister from Ambassador College. He came out to visit us, and my dad said, uh, you know, I understand from reading that there's no evidence of Jesus Christ outside the Bible. The young minister didn't have any answer. He didn't know that there is evidence for Jesus Christ outside the Bible. You look it up. Uh, the Roman writer Tacitus talks about a person by the name of Christos that created a lot of problems <laughs> in and around Jerusalem. Uh, in the first century, that Christos is Christ. 
So this is mentioned, I think, three or four other sources outside the Bible that Jesus Christ did exist. And if anybody suggests that he doesn't and there's no evidence, they don't know what they're talking about. They're promoting a lie. And that's what Paul was talking about. People would rather believe the lie instead of believing the evidence that is there. I mentioned in the booklet, um, The Bible Fact or Fiction, the section on uh, David. And up until about 1994, people believed, as one guy wrote an article in the Biblical Archaeological Review, 1994, about the house of David built on sand. And he was saying that um, there is no literary criteria for believing David to be more historical than Joshua, Joshua more historical than Abraham, and Abraham more historical than Adam. In other words, they're all fables. That was in 1994. A year later, they found an inscription, the house of David, that dates to that time in the Middle East, which all of a sudden, this was actually written up in U.S. News World Report, and he said it was a historical bombshell because the people that were making a lot of noise that David didn't exist all of a sudden were faced with the evidence that David did exist. And they found other things to back it up. Goliath, you know, that's just a story. But they've actually found a potsherd that dates to about the 9th century, 9th or 10th century, that says Goliath. That doesn't mean that's the Goliath, but what it means is the name was prominent and available at that time, just like the Bible says. And they found the gates of Gath, where the Bible says uh, um, Goliath lived. I mean, this is the type of information that's there, if you're aware of it. But if you are aware of it and you know it, then you're not going to be rattled by some of this stuff that people throw around. They found what they believe is Sodom and Gomorrah among the five cities on the southeastern side of the dead city. And there are five cities there. And there's evidence that they were destroyed by fire because there are layers of ash there, which is exactly what the Bible says. So this is the evidence, brethren, that's there. If you can... Get a handle on that and realize that you don't have to doubt the Bible. These things are there. And you might be thinking, or some people might think, you know, archaeology is not important. I've taken uh, the Gospels, and I've taken Acts, and I've taken the Epistles, and a little bit of Old Testament survey, and that's all I need. Well, if that's what you think, then you're going to have some holes in your armor. <laughs> because there's some powerful evidence there that you can become aware of. You know, Nelson Gluck, or Glusick, um, <clears throat> he lived, what, about 100 years ago, something like that. He was a prominent uh, Jewish archaeologist. And he made the statement, he says, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted the Bible. In other words, everything that we found, and that was up until he died. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. William Albright, a dean of... Uh, archaeologist there in the Middle East for a period of time who was no friend of Christianity made the statement uh, there is no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the historicity of the Bible I was talking to Dr. Gimano last week and he was saying look I've been studying archaeology for about 20 to 30 years and I've never seen anything yet that contradicts the Bible 
So this is the powerful evidence that is there if you take the time to get a little handle on it. There's an article came out, I saw this on the internet, found it on the internet, in Harper's Magazine in 2002, written by a journalist, and it was entitled False Testament, talking about the Old Testament. False Testament, Archaeology Refutes Bible's Claim to History. He says, with no exodus, there was no conquest of the Holy Land, these things are fables, never happened. Now, it sounds pretty convincing, but the journalist also mentions that he was reading a book, or he he quotes a book entitled uh, The Bible on Earth by an Israel Finkelstein, uh, who has a bunch of radical ideas. And that was where this journalist got his ideas. But if you dig a little bit, I came across another article entitled Armchair Archaeology and the New Atheism, where this author, who is a trained, has training in archaeology, he says, uh, the journalist that wrote Harper's article is crazy. All he's doing is promoting a bunch of radical ideas, and he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's way out of his field. Yeah, the article's available. Uh, Armchair Archaeology and the New Atheism. Quite an interesting article. And he basically makes the point that critics who attack the Bible and claim there's no support in archaeology simply don't know what they're talking about. But again, it's a powerful thing, the evidence that is there. Uh, <clears throat> this is why we teach some classes, archaeology of the Old Testament, archaeology of the New Testament. And archaeology is not about treasure hunting. Well, in some cases it has been. <laughs> But when you see the evidence that is there and understand some of these arguments, it can become a very powerful tool for building your faith. Not because you have to become archaeologists or understand a whole lot of things. It's understanding the basics and realizing the powerful evidence that is there. And you get people like Albrecht, who was no friend of Christianity, saying it's without a doubt that archaeology has demonstrated the historicity the factual, historical accounts that we find in the Bible. So this is there. It's there for the taking, if we take the time to do that. What about internal evidence in the Bible? And this is where the Bible becomes very different. This book was written by about 40 authors over a period of about 1,000, 1,500 years. And they're writing in different periods, different times, under different conditions, but there's no contradictions. Now, if we ask about a dozen of you to write down an account of something that happened this week and send them to me, I'd probably get ten different... I mean, we play games like this. You sit around in a circle and you whisper in somebody's ear. (laughs) And then it goes around the the circle. It comes back and, I said that? (laughs) I never said that. Well, that's what somebody heard. But the Bible isn't like that. You've got the same themes that run from Genesis to Revelation. They're talking about the same things. There's an agreement there that you can't get with human beings. There's a unity to the Bible. There was one mind that guided these things. What about preservation of the text? How do we know that we've... Uh, that this this was really preserved. You know, they copied it and copied it and copied it, and every time you copy, you make mistakes. So there's got to be a lot of mistakes. A book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You, know, you can read the little book that we wrote on the Bible fact or fiction, or you can read something... <laughs> 
like this. It's about three inches thick by Josh McDowell. It says the new evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. It's there. And you can't ignore it. But in that book, it says he comes to the conclusion, no other work of antiquity has been so accurately transmitted as the Bible. There's nothing that compares with the accuracy with which the Bible has been transmitted. Turn to you, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Again, we find the hints in the Bible, and then you find the evidence in some cases outside the Bible, but it agrees with the Bible or supports the Bible. And the more you find of this, I think the stronger your faith can be. Romans 3. Paul says here in verse 1, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, what is their role? What did God intend for the Jews to do? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. God committed the preservation of the scriptures to the Jews. We cover this in the booklet, uh, Bible Fact or Fiction, but it's also covered in many of these other books that are available. Uh, another scripture just to keep in mind, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 Go back and read that a little bit later. But God says there to Moses, don't add to my word and don't take away anything from my words. <laughs> just do it. I remember one time when Dr. Scott was a little boy, he was just learning how to walk. And I gave him a piece of paper and said, Scott, take this into the kitchen and throw it in the trash. And he could waddle along. But he went into the kitchen. I heard the door open under the sink and I heard something go in the trash. I heard the door close and he came waddling back into the room with a big smile because he did what he was asked to do. Now, as we get older, we're asked to do something. We come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't need to do it, which is just human nature. But God told the Israelites, don't take away from what I'm giving you and don't add to what I'm giving you. The Catholic Church can't quite say that they've followed that because they have added and they've taken away. And there are Protestant churches today that don't emphasize certain things where they add certain things to their explanation of the scriptures. But roughly from about 400 B.C. to about uh, 1000 A.D., again, about a 1400, 1500-year period, the Jews carefully transmitted the scriptures. They counted the number of words in a book. And they counted the middle word in the book to make sure that they were getting everything. Nobody copied Caesar's writings. Nobody copied Homer's writings that way. And there are thousands of documents that show that uh, things have happened that way. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had of the Old Testament was dated from about 1000 A.D. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were found when? 150 B.C. or something like that. So, one of the scrolls that was found in the Dead Sea, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, was the scroll of Isaiah. And when they compared it to the modern version of Isaiah that we have today, they're basically the same. So, over a period of almost 2,500 years, we can demonstrate that the content of the book of Isaiah has been virtually the same. And there are no other things that you can compare that way. 
this is what you're holding in your in your hand is that it's a book that has been credibly preserved that his, his it's, it's historically accurate it agrees with history it agrees with archaeology again we teach some courses I think Mr. Ames teaches a course on the uh, biblical text how it was put together how it's been preserved I'd encourage you to take some of these things you might say well I don't need it but we've been called to become what? Kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. When Christ returns, he's going to need a group of people that are able to sit down with other people and explain, this is what you weren't told. This is what you didn't come to understand. This is what you need to understand. This is the evidence that's been around all this time. I remember when I first heard a minister explain the Holy Days, where he just went through very briefly, I believe it was on the Feast of Trumpets. This is what the Passover means. This is what the Days of Unleavened Bread means. This is what Pentecost means. And at the end of the sermon, I turned around to an older fellow behind me, and he said, what do you think of the sermon? I said, he just blew my mind. I said, I've never heard anything like that that made so much sense. Because I grew up keeping Christmas and keeping Easter and praying and thinking I was a good kid. But I never heard there was a bigger picture until I came in contact with the church of God that was explaining that big picture. And we could explain it because we were keeping and understood the holy days. But Mr. Armstrong kept for a number of years until he finally realized what it was all about. God has revealed things to his church, and he wants us to reveal these things to the world. Do we have the complete Bible? We deal with this in the booklet. The Jewish scribes never included the apocryphal books uh, in what they considered to be the canon, inspired books of the Bible, books of Tobit, books of the Maccabees. They They were never included as being inspired books. The Gnostic Gospels were never included by people that wrote about the early canon of the New Testament because they date from a later source. They weren't around in the first century. And if you read a little bit, and I'm not encouraging you to study the Gnostic Gospels, but you might read one or two of them. They're, they're totally different. They're totally different. They got Jesus doing funny things, and Mary was really the, the power behind the throne. Uh, Mary Magdalene was really the power behind the throne. Uh, she was the one that was running things. It, it's a totally different thing. Because they're trying to undermine the books of the New Testament canon. Again, when you know what the facts are about the internal evidence of the Bible, this can strengthen your faith. You're not just believing in some book like any other book. You're believing in a book that God inspired and preserved. One of the biggest proofs of divine inspiration of the Bible is Bible prophecy. Is Bible prophecy... And this was one of the things that got my attention. I was asked by the guy that ordained, uh, the minister that baptized me, he said, well, what did you find convincing about the, the, what the church of God teaches? Why are you here? I said, because of prophecy. Because of prophecy, it makes sense out of why the world is the way it is. And I said, why are you here? <laughs> He said, well, prophecy, of course. But he said, for me, it's the way of life. 
He said, it really works. It really works. And it took me a while to get to that point <laughs> until I'd lived a little bit longer to see that you know, that way of life that's described in the Bible really does work. But prophecy was what got my attention. It got my attention because the churches I grew up in, I think uh, for 20 years, I may have heard one sermon about prophecy, you know, about Russia being the beast. Well, that doesn't really fit together. But that was what the person thought at that time. You know, all religions and all religious books are not the same. The Bible is the only one that really deals with prophecy in a very convincing and powerful way. I quote in the little booklet here, uh, Gleason Archer, who was an Old Testament scholar. Uh, he says, fulfilled prophecy is one of the self-authenticating proofs of the Bible. In other words, the prophecies are there. You look what happened in history, it happened. The prophecies are there. You look at what's happening today, they're happening. Mr. Armstrong was talking about back in the 30s, early 40s, that Germany would come back and lead Europe. Where is Germany today? They're back leading Europe. And some of the books that are coming out today say they, they didn't really push for this. They were pushed into that leading role because they happened to be the leading economic power in Europe. And the Europeans want somebody to hold the bag if they get in trouble. And the Germans got a lot of money. But they were thrust into this position. Why? The Bible says the Assyrian is going to be in a very powerful position at the end of the age. Another verification of Bible prophecy. You know, you're familiar, and I'm not going to go through a lot here this afternoon, but uh, Genesis chapter... the. Beginning in verse 12, go to verse to chapter 49, chapter 12 to 49, talks about the rise of the Israelites, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where 12 tribes would become eventually 12 nations, and they would gain control of the gates of their enemies, which we have. And Deuteronomy 28 says, if you turn away from me, you're going to lose. You're going to be persecuted in those gates, and you're going to lose them. And this is what's happening today. Genesis 48 and 49 talk about Ephraim and Manasseh are going to become a nation and a great nation. And they're going to inherit these blessings. These things have happened. And we're losing those blessings. And Jerry Falwell doesn't talk about these things. Some of these other leading ministers don't talk about these things. The Pope doesn't talk about these things. But we do. And the Bible explains these things. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 talk about this sequence of empires that will control Europe and the Middle East right up until the time Christ returns. And the book of Daniel was not written after the fact. It was written at the time that Daniel lived. And these are prophecies 2,500 years ago that are coming to pass today. The Koran doesn't deal with stuff like that. Nostradamus doesn't deal with stuff. Read some of his stuff. You can't figure out what it says unless somebody tells you what it says. Oh, now I see what probably was, might be there. I mean, it's all fuzzy stuff. But these Bible prophecies are pretty plain. They're very plain. There's some 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would flee to Egypt. He would die of crucifixion. He would ride a donkey into Jerusalem. 
And these prophecies were given four or five hundred years before he lived. And yet they happened. This is some of the evidence that is there. That when you have a handle on that evidence, you realize, hey, I've got something I can sink my teeth into here. Something that agrees with history, that agrees with the facts. And the more you see the evidence of the power of Bible prophecy and realize there just ain't anything like it in the Koran or in the writings of Confucius, uh, the Bible is in a totally different ballpark all by itself. I want to mention one thing before we close. Not just about the Bible, but the message in the Bible. The message in the Bible. And this is really a subject for multiple other sermons because there are all kinds of things in the Bible. But one thing I wanted to focus on in preparing one of the lectures for the class on the, uh, the Lost Ten Tribes. Reading through Paul Johnson's book, he's a British historian, he's a Catholic, um, wrote a book entitled The History of the Jews. And he made a very interesting statement. He says, is history merely a series of events whose sum is meaningless? In other words, is there no purpose for human life? Or is there a providential plan? In fact, in his book, he says, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book on the history of the Jews is because I wanted to learn about them. He says, no people has ever insisted more firmly than the Jews, and really it's the Israelites, because you're talking about the Old Testament, that history has a purpose and humanity has a destiny. At a very early state in their collective existence, they believed they had detected a divine scheme for the human race. They believed they had detected a divine scheme. The Bible is a book of revelation. God revealed to the Israelites the purpose of human life. At a very early stage in their collective existence, they believed they had detected a divine scheme for the human race, a purpose for human life, of which their own society was to be the pilot. They were the chosen race. Not because they were any better than anybody else. God chose them, gave them his law, Deuteronomy chapter 4, so they could be a light and example to the world as a result of living by those laws. And they were told in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey, you're going to be blessed, and if you turn away, there's going to be consequences. We have been blessed incredibly in this country and in the Western world because of the obedience of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And just as the Israelites went into captivity when they turned away, we are going to face the sound of some very sad music as a result of turning away from God. And this is what the book says. These prophecies are dual. And hopefully we can learn from that. If the Bible reveals in terms of the purpose of life that we're made in the image of God to become part of God's family and to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God, that's something very different than these Muslim terrorists are looking forward to when they blow themselves up. They hope they're going to wake up in paradise beside a river with, what, 70 virgins dropping grapes in their mouth. 
your future is very different. Some of these other philosophical religions believe when you die, you might come back as a worm or you might come back as a cow or something else, or you may blend in with the universe. In other words, you just disappear. You're absorbed. The gospel that turned people on in the first century was the fact that Christ was going to return and set up a government on this earth and bring peace to this earth and that we can reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. That's an incredible future. But that is what is outlined in this book. And Paul Johnson, who doesn't understand the whole story, senses that the Jews or the Israelites came across something that was pretty important that nobody else did. This is what God has given us to understand. We started out referring to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We can read what's in the book, and if we take the time to find the supporting evidence, look at it, dig it out from history, from archaeology, from these other sources, it's going to build your faith. You're going to realize you've got something solid. You're not just following a fable. You know, Peter mentions, I think it's in Second Peter 1 again, he says, we were eyewitnesses to what I'm writing about. We saw it. We were there. We didn't make this stuff up. This is real. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's, it's something real. It's something solid. And it's the evidence. The evidence of history. The evidence of archaeology. The evidence of these statements by experts that say that this book has been preserved incredibly. The stuff they're digging out of the earth fits with what's there. We don't have to make any excuses for it. If you take the time to prove and examine what it is you're going to believe, and then you hang on to it, you're going to build some really solid faith. And you're going to contribute to developing an atmosphere of faith in the church of God. Let's... Look at one scripture just finally in in Second Timothy chapter four. And Paul is the one who was talking about putting on the whole armor of God. Paul was the one who was talking about being able to defend uh, what you believe. And Paul apparently took his own advice. Because when you read in Second Timothy chapter four, verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. And I've finished the race, and I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. I didn't leave go of it. I defended it. I stood firm for it. And I never let go. Brethren, hopefully, if we each take the time to dig into and prove that this book really is the inspired word of God, and we look at the evidence that backs it up, you too will be able to say, I fought a good fight and I have kept the faith and I'm not letting go of it.